So Lord, as we worship you and we exalt you, may, yes, we be in awe of you. But may we also know that because of Jesus, we can come boldly before you, knowing that you meet us with grace and that your arms are open wide, that you and, and something that, oh gosh, it still doesn't make sense to us much of the time because we think we have to be the one that climbs to you, but you came down to us, took on flesh, and became the sacrifice, the lamb, you paid the penalty for all our sin so that we might be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Lord. And if that's blowing our minds, I pray that it'll continue to blow our minds because it's not supposed to make sense according to worldly ways we figure. But it does. It is, it is the beauty of the gospel that we are meant to receive. And so may it sink down into us and may it only, may we just react with more worship and gratitude to you. May joy naturally come from us, which is the outflow. If we really get the gospel, joy is the natural reaction. So Lord, I pray that joy will continue to erupt in our lives, not just today, but every day as we begin to grasp who you are and who we are in you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said Amen. Amen. Holy, holy, worthy is the Lamb. Man. And we're just getting started. <laughs> we're just getting started. Because um, we, are, we are today back in the book of Daniel. We've been in the book of Daniel the last few weeks. We're back in there today. If you want to go ahead and, and, and prep for the passage you're about to read in a second, we are on page 724 in those blue Bibles in front of you. Um, or if you brought your own Bible, we're in Daniel chapter 5, Bible app, Daniel chapter 5. Feel free. Thank you, JJ. And go ahead and turn there um, as we get going. And just to give us a bit of a recap of where we are, especially if this is your first time here. <clears throat> now, Daniel, the book of Daniel, is all about four Hebrew men who have been taken from their homeland of Jerusalem against their will off to a foreign land of Babylon, which immediately sets up this tension. You have four guys who are living in Babylon, but they're not of Babylon. And so the question we ask from the very beginning is, these guys have been taken from their homeland. Will they be able to remain true? Will they be able to remain faithful to God, even in the midst of this foreign land that's trying to assimilate them into its reality and into its ways? Well, we saw from the first four chapters of Daniel, the answer is yes and yes and yes over again. So that brings me to the next question then is like, well, how did they do it? I would love to have just grabbed a cup, a cup of coffee with Daniel and say, buddy, how did you do it? Because that's the point where I really want to lean in. That's the relevant question to me because it's no surprise here that, that if you're a follower of Jesus in our society, we are in the minority. All right, well, years ago, Christianity may have been a dominant shaping force as far as the values and the lifestyle and the understanding of reality for most people in our society, but no surprise, that's just not the case anymore. We are a, a dominantly, radically secular society. And so th that question of how do you live in a society but not be of it is quite relevant. And it's the very question that I want to lean in and ask Daniel and before asking Daniel, I mean, my first guess was like, well, it must have been his courage. Right? That's what helped him to stand firm. 
Because he had no problem just making plain to the king what was true. Okay, maybe. Or maybe it was his intelligence. Because apparently there was nobody like him. Or the first chapter said he was quite good looking. And I thought before, man, if I had a PhD and I was six foot two and tall and slender, people might listen to me a little bit more too. Right? But what we're going to see when we open up Daniel 5 today is that it doesn't highlight any of those qualities. That doesn't really seem to be the thing that caused Daniel to make a difference because Daniel didn't only remain firm, but God used him to change Babylon. Babylon didn't change Daniel. God used Daniel to change Babylon. And do we believe, as those who live in New England, that God can do the same thing in us? Now, come on, everybody. Like, like God didn't just place us here to endure a culture, but to actually be agents of transformation in it, in our families, in our workplaces, in our everyday neighborhoods, right? That we don't have to figure out how do we raise our kids to survive, but how can we raise our kids to be agents of change, transformation? That's what God did through Daniel. That's what he can do through us. Do you believe that? Yes. So what was it that caused Daniel to be a force of change? Well, we could look at several different qualities, but I want to highlight the quality that I see most firmly in chapter 5. And it's not courage, intelligence, or good looks, but it's humility. And even though you don't see the word humility in chapter 5, it is the undergirding Cult, like countercultural force, the God-given quality that has been forged into Daniel and is operating underneath everything he does. And so for those of us who live in this world, Scripture says, well, what does God require of us? The prophet Micah said, to act justly, love mercy, and to walk what? Humbly. How do you navigate the midst of the society we live in, Psalm 25, 9 adds, The Lord guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. So before we dive in today, though, my first question I'm going to try to address is, what hinders us from this quality? Because I can guarantee you, even a lot of us, even just reading that word, like, ugh. Man, imagine if I said, in the fall, we're going to start a five-week series on humility. Okay. Or if I started, we started a Christian conference. We said, we're going to get everybody to come. The theme, humility. Like, like I don't think a lot of people are going to come. <laughs> Why? Why is that the way we often tend to treat this quality? But then two, what is humility and what is it not? Let's clarify that. And then three, what we're going to really try to drive home today is why is it essential if we're going to live in the world but not be of it? And not only that, why is it essential if we're going to receive all that God has for us in Christ? That's where we're going. So let's open up to Daniel chapter 5 this morning. And quick setup before we get there, um, there's a lot of time has passed from Daniel 4 to Daniel 5. Daniel is no longer a spring chicken, right? He is probably in his upper 70s, early 80s. He has seen a lot of things in his life at this point. King Nebuchadnezzar, whom we saw in chapter 4, is dead and gone. There's another arrogant, prideful ruler has taken his place, and then another, and then another. 
And the newest royal addition is a guy named King Belshazzar who thinks he's pretty hot stuff. But even though he knows how God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't care. And the writing's on the wall for this guy. And God's going to work through this humble man, Daniel, in order to bring about transformation in this area. All right? You guys ready? Daniel 5, verse 1. I'm going to skip a few verses for the sake of time in here, um, but we're going to read most of it so you can fully get the story. Daniel 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. This was many years before. So that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that they had taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank the wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. Suddenly... The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Near the lampstand in the royal palace, the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. And then he begins to ask, anybody, anybody, can anybody translate this? I'll promise you all kind of stuff if you can. Nobody can. His wife, the queen, says there's a guy named Daniel. Daniel can do it. Well, Daniel now finally shows up. Verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the Spirit of God is in you, and that you have inside intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. And if you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride. Everybody say hardened with pride. He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived like wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all of this and said you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mine, mine, tekel, parson. Here is what those words mean. Mine, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, 
Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at age of 62. Lord, there's a lot there. Help us to see and hear what it is you want us to see and hear. But not just so that we can get to know what the Bible says, but so that you can transform our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So in case you've already forgot what verse 1 said, let's set the scene again. Belshazzar has turned Babylon into a wild nightclub. Right? All of his top nobles, all of his ladies were there. Meanwhile, we know behind the scenes Darius the Mede is marching toward Babylon. But Belshazzar is too drunk on his own glory to even know any of it's coming. So much so that he decides he's going to take these sacred chalices, these golden goblets, which would have looked somewhat similar to this. And he pulls them from the storage that they had from years before Nebuchadnezzar took them. And he starts to drink from them, praising all of these other gods. And now if you're a a Jew watching this, this is the height of arrogance to you. It is similar to where if, if someone came in our church, pulled out their hip flask, poured it in our communion cup, and started drinking from it while praising pagan gods. How would you feel about that? I know how I'd feel about that. So what's behind it all? What is this that's motivating him? What's driving him? Well, like a drug, pride gives us an intoxicating feeling of rising higher while it sets us up to fall. So there again, King Belshazzar, he's surrounded by a thousand people from the A-list, all patting him on the back as he downs wine. He is the man in his mind. Compliments are flowing. He drinks it down. All the money he could want, yes please. More, every wife and concubine at his disposal, just another swig. And not only in this moment is his body getting drunk, but he is getting drunk on his own pride until he decides to go toe-to-toe with the God of Israel himself. And yes, he knows exactly what God did for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. If you weren't here last week, go back and read that. When Nebuchadnezzar thought he was too big for his britches, God humbled him. But perhaps at this point, Belshazzar thought he was even higher than Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know. But for us reading this story, we see a guy who believes he's too big to fail. And that typically means what? He's about to fail. And you can add his name to a long list of dictators and rulers who have come all across history. From from Hitler to Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, all those who believed that they were bigger than life but fell hard. But the warning in this passage isn't just for world dictators. It's for all of us. Because all of us are born with the seed of pride. And given the right conditions, it can grow wildly into a toxic vine. And by pride, I don't mean the way that I'm I'm proud of my kids. Or I'm proud because I made a good dinner. But I'm talking about arrogant pride. And arrogant pride is this overgrown sense of our abilities and importance. It's what Daniel describes Nebuchadnezzar as in verse 20 when he says arrogant. That word arrogant can be translated lifted up. It can also be translated high on yourself. 
So much so that he began to harden his heart to the God of heaven. Pride is what made Adam and Eve believe that they could be like God. Pride, it was at work in Jesus' disciples as they fought over who was the greatest among them. High on ourselves, lifted up in our minds. And while pride doesn't need much to grow, the perfect soil is a mix of low self-esteem and a little success. See, Belshazzar, I can imagine when he comes into power, the, the, the looming shadow of Nebuchadnezzar is still over him. Those are some big shoes to fill. And that's a big job to do. But all of a sudden, even though he probably, again, guessing here, struggled with this inferiority or insecurity because even a couple kings before him was completely, and that's how they took over. The next guy took over. So I can imagine there's some insecurity there for him. But once you start getting a little praise and getting a little wealth and getting a little power, all of a sudden that goes down warm and begins to warm that insecure heart and becomes so intoxicating that you start to believe that you're bigger than God himself. And sometimes that's all God's enemy needs in order to flip us from being one who's seeking God to one that's against God. You know, the, 10 years ago in the Wall Street Journal, this fascinating article, this 30-plus year CIA veteran named Jason Matthews wrote an article about how do you flip an informant from spying for one country to spy for the U.S. instead. He said the secret was always in the ego. He said what they would do is find somebody who just had this abysmal self-esteem or who just life circumstances to just flatten them out and discourage them. And you come along and you start stroking that ego. You know, we've been thinking about you for a long time. We've had our eye on you. You're really good at what you do. You know, we've been hoping for some time that you would, would be able to, you know, help us out instead because we admire your work. There's no one like you. He said they even lied to one informant. And they said, the intel you're giving us is going straight to the president himself. And they said that's all they needed to make sure that that guy would face any fear to get them the information they needed. All you had to do had that ego. And for most of us in this room, we know what insecurity feels like. We know what it feels like to feel like nothing, to struggle with that, that self-esteem. And all we need is to taste a little success, a little compliments, or a little praise. And that's all pride needs oftentimes to flourish. That if at one point you feel less important than others, which is not true, but if you feel less important than others, all of a sudden you get that high of compliments or success, and now you start to feel a bit entitled, if not more important than others. You guys tracking with me so far? And the more pride flourishes, the stronger grows the impulse to edge God out. I, I was listening to this podcast. This guy named John Gordon said, the word ego stands for edge God out. And like Belshazzar, once our ego grows, we start playing with sacred things. So lifted up by our own intelligence or our own man-made philosophies. We think we can start remaking truth or saying that each person can decide for themselves what's true. We're playing God. It got quiet in here. 
or puffed up by our own scientific advancements or technology or inflated sense of goodness. We start trying to think, well, maybe the creator has got some things wrong. Maybe we think, you know, we start treating some human beings with less dignity than others. We think we have the right to determine the life of the unborn. We think we can begin to reassign gender even. Or even as Christians in the church, sometimes we want to use the church, which belongs to Jesus, bought by his blood. We want to use the church for our own glory. Or take his word and twist it to fit whatever agenda we want. Guys, these are all playing with sacred things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't come to God with our doubts and our questions. He wants you to come to him with those things. But there's a difference between coming to God with our doubts and our questions and our wrestles and trying to remake truth itself. The way I like to see it is if we're trying to remake Ultimately, step into God's position, edge him out. It's like, you know what? I'm going to put on the judge's robe instead and just kick God out. Because I think it's ultimately, it's my job. This is the only time you'll ever see me wear a robe, church, all right? (laughs) But instead of God being on the stand, we bump and we put God on the stand. And in our pride, think that we are now entitled to determine what's true, what's right, what's good, based on what our limited human minds think, feel, see, or experience. And those who do so may play with sacred things, one, because they, we don't know who the one true God is. There are many in this world that, like, this is all they heard. Or, like Belshazzar, pride blinds us into thinking that we can step into his seat. But, also like Belshazzar, pride is a setup. It's intoxicating, and a hard fall is coming. And oftentimes, even when we fall, and we're laying on the ground, we still keep this robe on. And we start, then then now, once we had the height of success, now that we're at the bottom, we start judging ourselves as worthless. God says, it's not your job to determine your value. I already have. Or we're on the ground, we start saying, God messed up. God's like, really? (laughs) But God tells us, and he warns us of all of this, because this is not what he wants for us. He has a better way for us. If like Belshazzar, we realize has pride left us thinking that we can play with sacred things, God says, I have a better way for you. And granted, again, a Christian conference on humility doesn't exactly sound like the kind of thing that would be well attended, but humility is a gift from God. Humility is a gift from God that sobers us with the truth of who he is and who we are. And with that, I'm taking this off. (laughs) But it sobers us to who God is and who we are, realizing that's not mine to wear. But Daniel, now in the story, an old man, he's seen everything at this point. That he's gone from being a traumatized Hebrew boy led in chains to a foreign land. He became the top, one of the top advisors in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. He interpreted Neb's dreams when nobody else could. 
But then after Nebuchadnezzar came and gone, another prideful king took his place, and then another, and then another, and eventually Daniel, they forgot about him. And by the time Belshazzar meets him, check this, it's subtle, but check it. He refers to him and says, are you one of those exiles he brought from Judah? Ouch. <laughs> Top advisor in the court. Of, you're just an exile, right? And whether people sung his praises or forgot his name, though, Daniel never reacted in offense or became cynical, but he remained available to God and still continued to work to change things for the better however he could. Which brings us again back to that question, Daniel, a little, a little coffee. <laughs> like, how did you do it? Well, f- first, let's understand what humility is. That humility is accepting who God is and who we are and being content with that. Let me say that again. Humility is accepting who God is and who we are and being content with that. Humility is accepting that there is only one most high God and we're not it. Instead of trying to be the judge, the name Daniel means my judge is God. Humility is not putting yourself down, but it is stepping down from the throne over your own life and conceding that position to our Lord and Creator. Humility is living with God at the center of all things, not me. And if we're going to live in this society but not be of it, why is this quality so essential? Well, first, amidst all the hollow distractions around us, humility has but one goal, to please God. In the beginning, Nebuchadnezzar, or, sorry, Belshazzar, he had all this gold, silver, stone, wood, all the oohs and the ahs of his kingdom. But once that handwriting gets on the wall, he is a hot mess. I mean, if you translated this like a little more crudely, when he says like his knees were knocking, what you could also translate that he literally lost control of himself, if you know what I mean. Like the guy was a hot mess. And in that desperation state, he offers a purple robe and gold chain and third highest position in the kingdom to whoever can figure it out. But how did Daniel respond to that? Do you remember? He says, I don't need your stuff. I know it's all empty anyway. I know you don't have much time left in kingdom anyway, but I don't need your stuff. As the song says, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. That he knew like King David knew. That better is one day as a doorman in the house of God than a thousand elsewhere. And for that reason, second, to be humble is to be free and fearless. God's Spirit gave Daniel the revelation of the writing on the wall. And let's just say the revelation isn't exactly something you would say to make friends. But Daniel didn't cower because he wasn't chained to people's approval. As a servant of the Most High God, he already knew he had the highest position anyone could have in the universe. Oh, you missed that. See, as a servant of the Most High God, he already had the highest station there is to have in this universe. You you tracking with me now? It doesn't matter what this world can give you. It is not higher than being a servant of the Most High God. And so for that reason, he's like, what can man do to me? I'm a servant of God. And as, a, as free people, 
That is when we can love our neighbor instead of looking down on them or needing anything from them. We are free to love. And when I realized that, man, that convicted me hard. And made me begin to wonder how many times do I look for, to people and to this world to try to give me something that I already have in Christ. How many times do we look for love, approval, station, importance, value, when we already have that in Christ? And so humility equips us to see who God is and who we are so that we can see through the distractions and it frees us to fearlessly follow God's way. But last, why is humility essential if we're going to be in the world but not of it? Yes, learning it is often painful. Yes, sometimes humility is learned because you're up here and God has to, boom, bring you down. But still, why is it one of the greatest gifts that God can forge within us? Last, because humility raises our hands up in surrender so that we can embrace God as our Father. The end of the story is one of both tragedy but also victory. For the prideful reading this, it's a warning. For the humble reading this, it is hope. For Belshazzar, the one who challenged God, oh, he met God, but he met God as judge. And the writing on the wall repeated one word twice, mine, mine, then tekel and parson. And even though nobody else could see it, Daniel has sober eyes, and he could see exactly what this was saying, that mine means numbered. He knew the guy's days were numbered. Tekel means weighed. And that he, God had weighed him on the scales of divine justice, and he was found wanting. Perez means divided, and so would his kingdom be. That drunk on his own pride, Belshazzar lifted himself up above God. So God had to meet Belshazzar as a judge who numbered, weighed, and ultimately judged him. And God's word says that this isn't only his fate. But it's the fate of anyone who refuses in this life to humble themselves before their creator. The late pastor David Gray Barnhouse made it clear. He says, Christ sends none away empty, but those who are full of themselves. And if we think that we're above God, or we don't need God, as divine justice would have it, we spend eternity without God. And this is the warning that God gives because he's merciful, because he loves you. He says, please hear what I'm saying so that you can come humble yourself and turn to me. But for Daniel all, and all those who turn to God in humility, we meet Christ the Savior. We meet God as Father. Because we realize, man, we've all come to God with a big ego. We've all tried to live with ourselves at the center of it all. We all have sinned more times than we can count. We have all been weighed on the scales of divine justice and been wanting. And therefore, the only thing we deserve is judgment. But instead of judgment, Jesus stepped down from heaven's glory, made himself nothing, a servant of all. And even though he had no sin, and even though... When he was weighed on the scales of justice, he fully satisfied the justice of God. It was his clothes that were divided, his body broken, 
His blood shed. He took the punishment for our freedom. And with his nail-scarred hands, he stands before the judge to say, I have paid their debt with my life, washed clean their record with my blood. And we say, well, how can we deserve such a thing? You don't. And that's the point. That's why it's called grace. Because grace means undeserved favor. And grace is the very antidote for pride. That everything Christ has given us is not because of what we've done. So that no one can come before God arrogantly boasting in themselves. But only in him. Before such a God, all we have left is to raise up our hands in surrender and say, I need you. I'm yours. And what's beautiful about this posture of surrender, it's also the posture of receiving. That we're able to receive all that Christ has for us. Because at the end of this story, we see that they threw on the robe and the gold chain on Daniel anyway, which are worthless. But that does symbolize that for all those who come to Christ, that you are robed in his righteousness. You are given the gold chain as a marker of his family. That you are given a position as a son or daughter of the Most High God. And by the end of the story, we see not only are we given this identity in Christ, but we have an eternal hope. The end of the story, we see how God is sovereignly orchestrating all things to ultimately bring about Darius the Mede, whom God will use to bring his own people back to Jerusalem later on. But Darius the Mede, again, just symbolizes how God is orchestrating all things throughout history. And we hold on to the hope that that his own son, Jesus, will return and come and make all things right at the culmination of time. And the moment we humble ourselves before God, We receive that identity. We receive that robe. We receive that position. We receive that hope. Then after we put up our hands, put our hands up and give up trying to be God, then we're open to receive all God has for us in Christ. So we're going to come down in a moment and celebrate communion. One thing I wanted you to think about, have you ever thought when you come down to receive communion, you don't bring any money with you? You don't barter and trade for the things that are given to you. Everyone comes down empty-handed and all we can do is receive. Why? Because there's nothing you can bring. God doesn't need anything from you. But out of a heart of love, he wants you. He desires you. He invites you to come. But before we can come, some of us, we're still holding on to people's praise to give us some validation or our wealth or our position or some sense of importance. God says, before you come down, let go. None of that matters anymore. The God of the universe is inviting you to his family table. There is no higher station than that. All God asks is that you recognize your own need for him. And then you come like this, ready to receive of his grace.
And the beautiful thing is, man, when we're, when we're living with pride and we're always stri- striving to live up to some standard or, or to get more people to like us or, or like it's never enough, like that's an exhausting way to live. But when we come down to receive grace, we're coming to this table to rest. The humility is what a lot, seeing who God is and who we are allows us to finally rest because of all that you already received in Christ. So we're going to have a moment of silence before we take this as a church. How is God getting your attention? What is, what is, how has he pinpointed or spoken to your heart? Or what is something that just kind of highlighted to you? I want you to spend some time just you and God talking to him. Empty your hands of anything you're holding on to so that you can come down to freely receive this gift of grace. So Lord, thank you for speaking. Thank you for grace. We just want to speak with you now in the silence. God, I've often been scared of humility. I love to admire humility in other people, but I don't really want to be shaped by it. Because I often know that the process of humility is hard and it can be painful. But Lord, may we have trust in you, knowing that when we do humble ourselves before you, and when, you allow, when you, we allow you to sober our eyes to who you are and who we are, and there is when we find peace, we find joy, we find grace. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.